Hello and welcome to another edition of Career Education Report. I am Jason Altmeyer, and today we have a very special guest, and she is very special because I have known her for a long period of time from both of our past lives. It is Barbara Mystic, and she is the president of the National Association of Independent Colleges and Universities, which is one of the most prominent and definitely one of the most interesting associations in all of higher education. And we're going to talk about the issues that are important to her members. But first of all, Barbara, thank you very much for being with us. Congressman Altmaier, it's a pleasure to be with you. No, now I have to call you Dr. Mystic. No, I just wanted to identify (laughs) when we first met each other was back in your congressional days. I think we were both in uh, the library world at that particular time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Barbara Mystic has been an entrepreneur She has been a professor, she has been a school president, a college president, and she ran the Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh, which is a really big deal. And uh, now she's running the association, the acronym is NIQ. So when you hear us say NIQ, that's what it is. And I find it really to be one of the most interesting associations, even outside of education, because you have such a diverse membership. And when you think about private nonprofit colleges in America, you have over a thousand members and we're talking about major research universities, church related colleges, historically black colleges and universities, art and design colleges, liberal arts, science, engineering, business, law, women's colleges, two-year schools. You run the gamut. You have everything. It's got to be very difficult and challenging to prioritize issues and to manage the work of the association with such a diverse membership. What makes it really fascinating, you know, every day is a is a new and interesting activity or a new and interesting issue to deal with. So that's really wonderful. But I find that there are some commonalities among our members. I mean, we. I, I often will say that our largest member is NYU, which has about 50,000 students. But at the same time, we have institutions that are maybe seminaries or there's some kind of a divinity school that just has a couple hundred students. But the vast majority sit in that range in the middle between about 2,000 students to, you know, 20,000 students, kind of that group. So, you know, I think we can, um, you know, identify the issues that are, that will touch everybody. There are certainly issues that impact parts of our sector in a different way than they do others. Regarding issues that touch everybody, you had the unfortunate circumstance of starting your role not long before the COVID epidemic shut everything down. And of course, in higher education, there were some very important and unique issues that touched on schools. How did you handle that, being new to the role and having to manage what was going on? It's certainly been an interesting couple of years for all of us. You know, I was really lucky that I got to start in September of 2019. So it was a little bit before the pandemic. And we have this wonderful relationship with a set of statewide organizations that represent prospective states. It's an association just like NICU, but state executives. We call it NICUZI to make it even more complicated in the, the association language. And I was running around the country really trying to get to know my peers in each of those states. And so I got a, I got a nice chance to get up to speed. And it was just invaluable for me as the pandemic came into play because everything really changed. And I'm sure you remember those days. You know, we were on the phone 
I remember a Christmas Eve and a New Year's Eve at the end of the Trump administration when we were waiting for that second stimulus bill to be signed and it had already gone through Congress. It really made a difference to me to have that. Some relationships around the country, we have a wonderful board of member presidents. And uh, we certainly, like everybody else, did a lot of calls during the pandemic and really looked to see what was going on, not just what we could do from the federal side. And, you know, certainly the stimulus was critically important to the stability of our sector, to the ability of our sector to be there and be able to be back and running again right away as we came out of the pandemic, started to recover from the pandemic but to really understand what was going on in each of the states too. So, you know, as you, I'm sure will recall, it was very different uh, what was happening in one state, just even the, it wasn't just the vaccine issues, but it was the delivery of services. Some institutions were back in person almost immediately. They missed that spring semester in 2020, but they were back again in the fall. So it was really interesting to to see all of those differences, I think in some ways it got me up to speed. There's nothing like a crisis, right? When you come in to really get you up to speed on the issues in your sector and what would really make a difference. And, you know, I do think that, you know, Congress really understood that and certainly the stimulus funds that came to all parts of the higher ed ecosystem were extremely important. And now that things are mostly back to normal, in higher education, there are huge issues that are pending. We have a presidential administration that is very active on higher education issues and is trying to push the envelope as far as they possibly can with regard to student aid and issues like that. And uh, again, with such a diverse membership that you have, you have to focus on all of these issues. How is your membership at NICU different than, say, the public universities or, or other types of schools? What, what are the issues that you focus on that might be unique to your membership? You know, certainly we have a very diverse membership. And sometimes the issues that we're dealing with do overlap with the various other sectors of the ecosystem. And then there are particular issues that are that just impact our sector. So what we try to do is to make sure that we're taking leadership on those issues that just impact our sector, that we're contributing when we're looking at things that impact the whole ecosystem. So, you know, actually the COVID pandemic is a good way to think about that because during the pandemic, it was really all the sectors working together that I think generated the kind of support that we were able to get from Congress. It was working together really made a difference and there are, you know, I think there are a lot of issues on which we can work together that we do within the ecosystem. We all care about certain things. Student aid would be one of those issues. Funding for student aid would be one of those issues. But there are regulatory pieces that come to our private nonprofit sector that aren't impacting the public sector. So on those particular issues, you know, we've got to take the lead and, and really be front and center and make sure that the interests of our members are understood in the administration. And I'll get to some of those regulatory issues momentarily, but I think the biggest difference, the most tangible difference between your members and say public universities and community colleges is those institutions for the most part get huge public subsidies often at the state level. Your members, I'm guessing for the most part, do not have that same type of benefit. So when funding issues come up and issues related to that 
type of dynamic. Uh, how do you handle that with your membership? I think you've identified a, a, a very real issue for us. You know, at the top of the list of things that we work on is equity. You know, equity for our sector when you're looking at either regulatory issues or funding issues or our policy issues. So our sector, I think one of the fascinating things, and perhaps not well understood about the private nonprofit sector, is that we have about the same percentage of Pell students as the public sector does. Often people have this, you know, it's really a misconception to think that the whole private nonprofit sector is the elite, the hyper elite part of our membership. And it's not, because if you look at, you know, the universe of 1,700 private nonprofit colleges in the United States, a lot of those are regional colleges, they're small institutions. And so when you look across the sector, we were at about 41% Pell eligible students for our institutions and the public sector is about 43% Pell eligible. And we do all of that without the same level of state support. So, you know, those issues are critically important to us. Often these things get in the weeds, as you well know, there are a lot of devil in the details, but things like maintenance of effort, we dealt with a lot of that during the pandemic, what was going to happen on the state side. Would private institutions be eligible for some of the funding streams that the states had because of the three rounds of stimulus that came to the states? So, you know, we were very actively involved in each one of those pieces at the end of the day, I think, you know, the states valued the sector as much, I think, as the feds did. And I've really seen many of the states just step up and make sure that the private nonprofit colleges were eligible for the same levels of funding, for the same kind of support, particularly when you come to things that like mental health issues, issues that impact all the students, all the learners on a campus. You know, I think states, by and large, not all, but by and large, have been supportive of each part of the ecosystem. As a matter of fact, it might have been a silver lining to the pandemic for states to understand how important each part of the ecosystem was. There's a lot of issues that bring the higher education community together. There are occasionally issues that drive different interests apart. But if you think about the Supreme Court ruling, not just on debt forgiveness, but on the affirmative action and admissions Think about third-party servicers, guidance uh, that came forward. I think when the casual observer thinks about, well, what would a higher education association focus on? You're thinking about student aid and issues like that. But there are so many issues, Title IX, which come up that bring everyone together. Can you talk a little bit about how, let's use the third-party servicers as an example, when, when that came up. How do you gauge the interest and the prioritization among your members, how important it is, and then how do you work with the rest of the higher education community to go forward with your agenda? Right. So the third-party servicers, you know, that is a good example to talk about because it, it really was a proposal that came out from the Department of Education that was perhaps not as fully considered as it might have been. And I think one of the challenges for us, you know, I'd venture to say it might be true for the other associations as well, is that we do have a diverse membership base. So it takes us some time to get the right kind of feedback from our members. And, you know, I think one of the things that's frustrating, particularly right now, is when we have just a 30-day comment period. I'm a believer that, you know, if we're going to have good policy, it has to have a good process. And if we just have like a 30-day period of time, 
we've just had a chance. Sometimes these, you know, how big these regulatory pieces are, they can be a couple hundred pages, they can be a thousand pages. And we've got to take some time to analyze all of that, to look at the intersections with the other parts of the policy. And then we need time to go back to our members and find out exactly how this rolls out on their campus. So we do have a a system of action alerts where we go to our members and we ask them for feedback. You know, the third-party services were complicated because I think no one expected how many parts of every of the enterprise third-party services were. And so, you know, if you were a small institution, you had servicers. If you have study abroad programs, you had servicers. If you had uh, platforms for your software, I mean, it was just, you know, it was everywhere across the board. So I do think that, you know, we were able, we were successful in that particular example of getting a 60-day comment period. So we were able to get more robust feedback to the department. I do think the department figured out that they had that overreached a bit and they did pull back pretty quickly and agree the third party issue had far greater implications than they had originally anticipated. So I'm going to be interested in what they propose in this upcoming negotiated rulemaking on this topic. I mean, this is a place where we do have a process, right? We do have this mechanism called negotiated public rulemaking. So rather than just going out and sort of putting a flyer out there and saying, we're going to do this, this, and this, we really need to have that process and be able to go through that process. So I, you know, I'm kind of grateful that we got back to that, but certainly we had to engage all of our members to understand how, how much of an overreach this was and how critically it would have impacted everybody. It didn't matter if you were the largest campus or the smallest campus, it, it impacted everyone. And there are a few issues that I have encountered in the three years that I've been at career education colleges and universities that stimulated as much interest among our membership and got people as fired up as, as that one. And we have certainly had a lot of big issues that have affected our members. You outlined a number of concerns with, with the overseas issues and so forth that when you think about them, when that guidance came out, how do you think that the department got itself into a position where they had a number of proposals that just did not seem to be very well thought out. And it brought the higher education community together because there were just so many very obvious flaws with it. Yeah. And I think that is uh, the end of the story too. When something comes out like this and it does impact everybody, there were joint letters. We do work in conjunction with the rest of the ecosystem. And when there are issues like this that touch everybody, we'll sign on collectively so that there's a sense that the whole ecosystem is upset about this. That it's not going to work for anybody. But then there are usually specific things. And so we'll weigh in on those specific things that impact our institutions that might not impact, for example, the public sector. So, you know, I think in this particular case, higher ed is very complicated, right? It's it's a complex enterprise. You know, we were just talking as we got started about the size and the different different kinds of members that make up just my sector, just the private nonprofit sector. Multiply that by your sector, by the community colleges, by the publics and so on. So I think that, you know, perhaps it takes time to understand how complicated all of that is. I think it does benefit if you've had some experience on a campus. I mean, having been a campus president gave me unique insights to the third-party servicer. I could see how many pieces it would touch. You know, I'm not sure that the department 
I think sometimes we'll analyze an issue. This has happened a couple of times. They'll analyze an issue for internally for maybe a year, a year and a half, but they're not getting that external perspective. And that's the piece where a process like negotiated rulemaking can come in because in those processes, there are representatives from each of the parts of the ecosystem. And that can bring a greater knowledge and understanding. So I, I think that is what was missed here in this piece. But it, it just touches everything. If you've got a contract for health services, if you've, you know, it, it was just so far reaching. You know, I was sitting actually in a meeting the day that that guidance came out. I was just about to speak to a group of, you'll, you'll like this, uh, Jason, to a group of college and university librarians, because I can never say no to librarians. There's just something in my background that doesn't allow me to do that. And the person who was speaking before me was talking about how they did all of their marketing services, all of their enrollment brochures and everything else were done by a firm in the UK. So that's a third-party servicer, and it's a servicer that's not even in the United States. So it is, uh, I think, become very incumbent on us to try and educate each of the subsequent administrations when they come in so that they will understand the complexity. But then, um, you know, communication just becomes so critical. And as you were talking, I found it interesting because you were saying that there are certain things that affect different parts of higher education, different ways, and some things that affect everybody. And, you know, there is a rule, and I, I won't get too deep in the weeds because we've done other shows on it, programs on it, but borrower defense to repayment, which gives students the opportunity to seek repayment when they feel that they've been misled throughout the process. And, and the Biden administration has proposed a very sweeping rule. Really, they actually implemented the rule, although it is uh, tied up in court right now. Do your members view that particular rule as something that affects them? I know it's tempting to say, well, this was designed to go after for-profit schools, but as you know better than anybody, the way that it is written, it actually is very sweeping and it can affect other types of schools. And borrower defense claims are now starting to see an uptick across all types of schools in higher education. Is this something that is of interest to your members? Absolutely. You know, I think that within the Higher Education Act, there are places where there's not a clear uh, differentiation between for-profit and not-for-profit. And so there is a, a sweeping arch that occurs. And some of the issues that you're talking about, like borrower defense, do impact the nonprofit sector as well. And I think that there is a lot of concern as we're looking particularly at return on investment and looking at borrowed defense claims and looking at the new requirements that the department wants to put in place, that this could very much have an impact on whether a student um, selects to go on to college or to a university or whether somebody goes back for a degree or whether a learner seeks some additional skill enhancement because there's going to be different kinds of requirements about the return on investment. So I think institutions are very concerned about that. Anytime there is a increased um, oversight that's proposed, anytime that there is kind of this push on accountability, I mean, we're very supportive of the issue of accountability, and we certainly believe that we should be accountable to the public and we should be accountable to taxpayers who make a lot of opportunity available for students and learners at higher education institutions. 
We have to be uh, accountable to the Department of Education for federal student aid. We have to be accountable to creditors, (laughs) to students for educational quality, to states for the appropriate oversight that the state has. There are boards of directors, trustees at institutions, the IRS. I mean, there are mission-related organizations that some of our members belong to. So there are lots of layers of accountability, and we're very supportive of those layers of accountability as long as they're reasonable and as long as they're equitably applied. So this piece about borrowed defense, it's going to impact our sector as much as it will impact your sector. And, you know, I I think that the claims that are there currently, the percentage of claims that have been lodged against private nonprofit institutions are about the same as the percentage of our sector is to the ecosystem. So we're about 20% of the overall ecosystem. So I think, you know, we want to make sure that we're accountable, but there's always going to be dispute. Anybody has experiences your experience, my experience, we could have done the same exact thing and feel differently about it when it's over. And so I think you're going to see that particularly in borrower defense. And we would caution the department or, or consumer groups in particular to advertise borrower defense as a way to get your loans repaid. Now that the Supreme Court has overturned the president's idea of uh, loan repayment, this has been advertised a little bit as as an alternative way to get your loans repaid, which is, of course, not what it is designed to do. Right. And certainly the proposal that the White House and the administration put out on uh, loan forgiveness has really put a spotlight on this issue. And, you know, I think it is an economic issue. I know that's why a lot of this interest has come on borrowers. But we really have to be careful that we don't cut America's future by being so focused on just this borrower side so that we discourage students from accessing the education that they want. I mean, really, you know, a lot of people will talk about higher ed as a transformational experience. It's really an experience of hope. And you, we don't want to take hope away from the American public. So if we get too locked into any one of these parts of policy that the administration's put forth, we could lose students and lose our economic edge. And, you know, I think that's something to be concerned about. And as we close, I'm going to ask you a question that I already know the answer to, but I think it will be of great interest to at least some people. It's a niche issue, but I I misspoke earlier. I said that you had led the Carnegie Museum and it was in fact the Carnegie Library in Pittsburgh. And there is a difference and it's an important difference. Congressman, I wasn't going to correct you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as we record this, we're on video, we can see each other, one another, and I saw your face when I said that. I knew immediately what had happened. But yes, I do want to correct. It was Carnegie Library. And you also were involved with the Heinz School of Public Policy at Carnegie Mellon University. And I was in New York recently, and I was at an event and, you know, just chit-chatting and the subject of Carnegie came up. And of course, they corrected me immediately. They thought that they said, you know, well, it's actually Carnegie, Carnegie Hall. And I said, no, no, I'm actually, I'm from Pittsburgh. Let me explain the situation. But you are an expert on this. And I know you get probably asked about this more than anybody. Can you explain how you pronounce that name? It is Carnegie, and you're correct about that. So, you know, he came from Dunfermline, Scotland, and That was the pronunciation. I think, you know, certainly uh, Carnegie was very interested in being a player in New York. And as those institutions 
were uh, started and settled in New York, they did change the, you know, how they pronounced that. But those of us here in Western Pennsylvania, where Andrew Carnegie's very first public library is located, um, understand the difference in the pronunciations. Great. Well, I'm glad we settled that. Thank you very much for being with us. It's been an honor to have you. It's great to be with you again. And if somebody wanted to learn more about NIQ and the association and what you're working on, how would they find you? How would they learn more? I can certainly just come to our website. There's lots of information there. It's naicu.edu. Dr. Barbara Mystic, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Career Education Report. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, visit our website at career.org and follow us on Twitter at CQED. That's at C-E-C-U-E-D. Thank you for listening.